0: Hello, Cachimbonas. I am so excited to be bringing you episode 34 of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. As a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans. This is a very special, one-of-a-kind episode for the podcast because it is a recording of a lecture that I gave at the University of Arizona Law School For the Immigration Law Students Association there and for the chapter of the National Lawyers Guild, I was focusing on and reflecting on being a movement lawyer and doing immigration law. I was vulnerable about the difficulties that I've had with trying to keep my movement lawyer values and engaging in mainstream nonprofit social justice lawyering. I am a little nervous to be this vulnerable on a platform like the podcast that was intimate and I was with like-minded folks and so I felt like I could be really real. I hope and trust that that's the case with my podcast listeners overall. So thank you to the two newest patrons, Violetta and Gloria. Seriously, you all, I could not do this without you. Um, I hope that you all enjoy this lecture and Q&A. Bye. Well, thank you to the NLG and to the Immigration Law Students Association for inviting me to come and speak about the always urgent question of how to be a movement lawyer and do immigration law. To start, I wanted to define what movement lawyering is, which Law for Black Lives has given a very helpful definition that I abide by. Movement lawyering is taking direction from directly impacted communities and from organizers, as opposed to imposing our leadership or expertise as legal advocates. It means building the power of the people and not the power of the law. Why become a movement lawyer? It's not really an intuitive place to arrive at as a law student. Law trains you really to be the opposite of a movement lawyer. But the benefit is collective liberation that we won't be able to win inside of a courtroom. Legal remedies are extremely limited. It's limited to recouping money that's been lost, stopping the government from doing something, establishing the constitutional floor of a particular right. And focusing your strategy for social change on a legal fight will ultimately limit what you can accomplish to these things. Legal education is focused on what is contained within the four corners of a judicial opinion. It trains you as lawyers to think about what social change is most needed and how to go about obtaining that. In public interest circles, impact litigation is considered most prestigious and most respected. But impact litigation literally places lawyers at the helm of strategizing for social change and centers the law as the main vehicle for achieving that change. It literally involves imposing our leadership and knowledge on directly impacted people. And the legacy legal nonprofits that lead impact litigation today have a really serious history of disregarding client needs for the courtroom win. Acclaimed critical race theorist Derek Bell critiqued his work at the NAACP fighting for school integration because he said it went against the wishes of the plaintiff parents who actually wanted equitable resources in Black schools not to integrate and send their children to school with white children. The NAACP thought that a better legal strategy was to fight for equal protection and integration. Looking at how public schools remain highly segregated and funded unequally, his critiques remain relevant. The ACLU lawyers who represented Norma McCorvey, the plaintiff in Roe versus Wade, didn't inform her of an ability to get an abortion because they didn't want to moot their case. Norman McCorvey eventually became a darling of the right wing when, years later, she retracted her pro-abortion stance and said she regretted her involvement in Roe. It seems that her distaste over how her lawyers had taken away her agency and the subsequent rebuffs from her lawyers at speaking events, et cetera, community engagements after the fact played at least some role in Norma's political switch. These instances aren't aberrations. These organizations are not set up to support movement lawyers or movement lawyering. They are not movement lawyer organizations. They are impact litigators who are accountable to their board members and donors before the community. Or even the plaintiffs that they represent. So, how did I become a movement lawyer as a person <laughs> who did work for the ACLU? Well, I sought my legal education outside of the classroom and the law school environment altogether. It's really fitting for me to be back here and to be invited by the National Lawyers Guild because the National Lawyers Guild was a huge part of my own abolitionist political education, as was well the organization Critical Resistance. The NLG adopted an abolitionist stance in 2015, which was the year that I started law school. And learning from generations of movement lawyers was invaluable to me. Building these intergenerational relationships that will inspire action in you is critical because you witness others having built their life and work around your shared values and realize that it is, in fact, possible to do that. Radio Cachimbona has provided me with a platform to critique the law. That's the podcast um, that was mentioned earlier to say the things that I could not say in the classroom or in the courtroom. And I've been doing that since I was a second year at Stanford. Similar to my journey in legal education, my movement lawyering has largely happened outside of my paid roles. I'm a part of the Keep Ale Free deportation defense team, which is fighting to keep reproductive justice activist Ale Pablos home and defend her against deportation. But the work is more than just The deportation defense that's being done inside of an immigration courtroom. We're also using her case as a vehicle for doing political education around the criminalization of migration. We're a volunteer group that is building up an apparatus for community-led deportation defense that centers the person in proceedings and their unique needs and wants instead of focusing on a legal strategy that focuses only on a courtroom win. The political education piece is really critical to what we do and makes this distinct from a strategy that focuses solely on individual representation. We're using Ale's story to show how the laws of the late 90s criminalize legal permanent residents and to disrupt narratives of the good immigrant versus the bad immigrant, and to reveal also how criminalized people of color are in Southern Arizona and how this is tied to the immigration system. As part of this work, we presented a workshop at the Allied Media Conference about why abolishing ICE is also reproductive justice. We presented at the U of A about abolitionist organizing in Arizona. We led a car rally outside of the Eloy Detention Center amidst the corona pandemic in 2022 to ask the detention center and ICE to free them all. And we've held fundraisers supporting people recently released from prison. We're currently working on the deportation defense of a Tucson community member, and we'll be fundraising with an altar building, Dia de los Muertos event, which I can link to let you all know about in Phoenix. The podcast and the political education piece is also part of documenting this work as well. Derek Bell and other critical race theory scholars emphasize the importance of counter-narratives, of people of color telling their truth about racism and the oppression that they experience as a means of spreading awareness about that oppression. And that is exactly what we're trying to do with the Keep alle Free Deportation Defense campaign. Storytelling has been a critical part of my movement lawyering and through the podcast, but also as part of the Keep Ale Free Deportation Defense team to build people power instead of power in the law. So that was a little intro that I had planned, and now I just wanted to open it up to questions that you all may have. Thank you.
1: (laughs) I have a question. I'm always curious when somebody goes from being in law school to choosing movement lawyering or to kind of like build a practice of movement lawyering. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about early days for you and kind of early inspiration and maybe like how that turned into practicing movement law.
0: Yeah, I think going to the National Lawyers Guild conferences as a law student was really helpful for me to see how different people were setting up their legal practice. Before that, I hadn't really considered the limitations of nonprofits. After working in nonprofits, those limitations became really apparent to me, but it was seeing people in private practice forming horizontal cooperatives that made me realize there are many different ways to set up a radical legal practice. And that can be counterintuitive because I think everybody sort of thinks if I'm going to be doing movement law I'm going to work at a nonprofit Um, and seeing how people were doing that in private practice and the benefits of that, of not having to be accountable to uh, your board leadership or to donors, having your agenda for your work freed up as a result is something that really helped me figuring out what I wanted to do and it also helped me navigate nonprofit life because I am a person who is involved in community and I have ties to community organizations for which nonprofits are invested in connecting in like good ways and like kind of bad ways and I think I I had a I was discerning about which connections to make at my workplace and which not because I was evaluating how leadership treated the people we brought in as community partners. And I don't want my reputation to be damaged because of how leadership in the place where I work treats people. Yeah, and those were all lessons that I feel like I started learning as a law student, going to NLG conferences and meeting people who had dedicated their lives to this and were creating alternative workplaces.
2: Hi, I'm really inspired to hear about like those conferences and just the possibilities that you're describing and also what you were uh, talking about with the work that you're doing, centering my desires and, and, and wants, because I feel like that is definitely the exception and not the, the norm. Are there ways to like get involved with what you're doing? Or I guess kind of missed, was that under the umbrella of the defense of um, or keeping, I forget their name.
0: Keep free. Yeah. 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 I would say that, um, we would love to have anybody come help because we're a small group of people. I also, I think that keep Tucson together, which I don't know if you all have heard. Of, it's like a branch of, it's a group that is an offshoot of no more deaths, the humanitarian aid organization. And they also do some help with having folks represent themselves and doing that kind of empowering work. But I would say that we're probably the only group that's doing that kind of pro se work with the intentional political education component linked to it. And yeah, I think I'll definitely send out ways to get involved in the Keep Ale Free campaign because we need them. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. the private firms that you were talking about having successful kind of horizontal coalitions. Do you know how they initially made those partnerships um, in the community and were able to do that in a respectful way?
0: That's a really good question. I I think that people meet, I mean, I emphasized a lot that um, most of my movement work is not in my paid Mm -hmm. roles. And that's something that's true of a lot of people that do this work. And I think you do meet and network with each other through these different initiatives. I don't know, just as one example, like the Water Protector Legal Collective came about through folks meeting at Standing Rock. And Mm -hmm. then afterwards, coming together and deciding that they were going to do criminal defense for people who were criminalized from those protests. And honestly, the world is small, like meet someone there, and then you you do another project and you run into them again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And... Those are the kind of organic connections that I've made as far as how to do it respectfully. I think I would say trust yourself. Um, And if you're explicit about why you want to make that connection and you're explicit about the values that are shared that you see within yourself that they're modeling, then I think that's a great way to open the conversation because it is such a small world that when you meet other people who are interested in doing this. You're just so excited. Mm -hmm. Like you want to welcome them in. It's not clicky. Or like exclusionary. people are genuinely excited that you went to law school and that you're becoming an attorney, and this is the kind of work that you want to do.
1: Another question on that. Yeah, so are I've heard I've worked previously in government where people were very much repeated this idea of taking off this hat and putting on this hat. And so when you're navigating both the volunteer spaces and also potentially like a paid outside role, is there are there any nuances to that or logistics to? doing
0: that without. I just feel like you should feel totally empowered to bring the self to work that you want to bring. Mm-hmm. I remember after the Eloy detention car rally happened, there was a news coverage of it. So suddenly my legal director was interested in what we were doing and was like, why didn't you bring this idea to me? Like, if you have other ideas, please let me know. And I absolutely did not because that, Uh, Because (laughs) because like her interest was, was about co-opting this work that had been ongoing for a long time that was based in deep relationships Mm -hmm. that had become trendy because journalists had decided to cover it or because that, I don't know, Carl, I guess for a thing during the 2020 pandemic. And I didn't want to bring in any of that work in the space because it would, I had seen how bringing in ACLU to a community led coalition got in the way of larger Mm -hmm. goals. And litigation is time consuming. It, you know, I say that to kind of justify, but not really like why a lot of times when you bring in lawyers and you start a litigation that can deflate the social organizing that's happening around the work and the focus becomes the litigation, Mm -hmm. which drags on for years and years. And then you just, you know, you went from having like a really active stop the checkpoint campaign to just focusing on, the litigation about getting it taken down,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and so yeah, there, the nuance is like just being intentional about why you're bringing in your outside non-paid work to the nonprofit mm-hmm. that you're at. ACLU has a lot of resources, so there are times where these partnerships can be strategic, and then there's other times where it's not, and it's just about you being the buffer and you deciding when to bring in where you work and when not to. Thanks.
3: talk a little about your journey
0: with actually going on, like how it started and how it's grown and what's its like. Yeah, um, I started the podcast when I was the second year in law school because I was very frustrated by legal education about, you know, how we were reading these opinions and we're just focused on what the opinion said and we didn't really, I don't know, you could just there are all these like monumental decisions, that you would never know. Oh, this was happening at the time period. Like this is what was affecting this individual's decision. And I felt also like anytime you brought up things like race or gender or class, I felt like my comments were deintellectualized or not seen as rigorous. There was like this performative objectivity that made it so comments about race and class and how those things were operating in the world were not as academically rigorous. And that was just super frustrating. I didn't, I felt like I wasn't heard. And then at the same time, I felt like I was learning so much about how the law oppresses people in their everyday lives in ways that seemed to not phase my fellow classmates. but really, really shook me to my core. For me, the case in CivPro about whether or not it was excessive force when the police officer rammed someone's car and made them quadriplegic. I was shocked at the classroom discussion of that case. Like there was people who literally defended the police officer's actions and saying, well, they were speeding. I mean, why wouldn't that be justified? Um, I just felt like if that's where the conversation was, it wasn't even worth it to bring up what I was trying to talk about. And so that's what made me start the podcast with my friend, Cynthia, my law school classmate. And because we were both feeling the same way, we were both feeling really unheard um, about these things that we thought were really important. And one night, I don't know, she just she was like, let's just do it tonight. Let's just record it. And then we picked our topics and we did it. And it's come a long way since then. When Cynthia graduated, she felt like it was too much of a burden to be doing the podcast and legal practice. And to be honest, it really was a lot. But for me, it felt like it was a part of my own. It was a part of preserving my own mental and emotional sanity to keep doing the podcast. And that was how I think I was able to to do it on my own for so long. This year, I partnered with Fuerte Arizona, which is An advocacy arts movement trying to build up political education involvement through the arts. And they help edit my podcast, which that has cut down the amount of time that I put into it by at least half. And so it's like a lot easier for me to balance my paid work and the podcast now when it wasn't so much before. But what fueled me before was just like, if I don't do this, I'm gonna lose my sanity. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm really excited because. Um, this month for Latinx Heritage Month, the podcast was featured by Apple Podcasts. That's not something I would have thought when, you know, we. I decided to do this as a student. But I think it's just a testament to how these topics are really important. People want to hear about them. And there's not a lot of people talking about it. Talk
3: a little bit more about what you learned about people structuring their law <laughs> practice. Yeah. In ways that you found appealing that were authentic and respectful and
0: all that? Yeah, I think there's like two models that I really respect. There was the private practice of individual practicing attorneys, but that had formed a co op to share like overhead expenses that I thought was really cool because that's something them sharing an office was both a financial aid to them, but also they would help each other in their work. And then Pangea was a nonprofit that I interned for when I was a 2L. They do deportation defense, but also they do have this advocacy component as well. And I liked their model because it's horizontal. It was completely horizontal. So there was no executive director and every single person, the lawyers and non-lawyers were paid the same, which is actually pretty radical in the legal profession. I felt like they actually lived out The egalitarian value of not having leadership or not having one person or not having a hierarchical leadership in that people who were legal assistants were also very deeply involved in the policy work. That's not a division that that's not something that you would see in a traditional law office where legal assistants are kind of solely tasked with doing administrative stuff. Yeah, I guess I do have to give the caveats that the people at Pingy are my friends, so there's the advice. <laughs> but I I worked there and I did enjoy working there and um, no workplace is perfect, but I think that the structures that they have in place make it so that it's the most egalitarian workplace that I have seen.
1: I think something that like a lot of us in talking about movement law come up against and have been thinking about is like you were talking about the space for non-lawyer legal workers. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering whether, I guess you said a little bit that you've come across ways in practice that they've been involved in that work, but whether that's been an important population that you've worked with in your work. And if you could talk a bit about that.
0: I mean, I think that this is actually a really huge issue that honestly, we need to improve on. Like Pangea is literally the only organization that I can say that has Empowered folks who do primarily administrative stuff to get more involved in like the substantive legal and policy stuff. I always try and make it a priority, just because I've witnessed just like racialized and gendered components to this. Like I worked at a immigration nonprofit that was all white attorneys and then all like Latina legal assistants. I saw how uh, there was an imbalance in. In labor, and this is especially true in direct legal services where legal assistants are the ones who are actually talking to the clients, like actually doing the intakes. They were the ones who dealt with all the emotional labor. And then the attorneys got to have a more detached approach to the work. And then on top of that, there's that imbalance in work where the legal assistants are doing more work and they're severely underpaid as compared to the lawyers. I was a summer intern. And so I was trying to help them unionize. But then I, you know, but then I left at the end of the summer. And so I think that's an area of growth for me and like for a lot of the places that i work worked for, because also not everybody needs to go to law school and like we should be better about making room for folks who have experience, like direct knowledge or directly impacted and who don't want to go to law school, but who still want to be involved in the work because there is a lot of room there. Um, I think... Obviously, everything within like the requirements of legal ethics in terms of not letting people practice law when they haven't passed the bar. But apart from that, like I think that isn't as difficult to navigate, and I think it's more of just lethargy and people not being intentional about that.
2: On the subject of political education, what strategies have you found effective for really like disseminating legal knowledge in the community? Because I like in my experience, I found that to be a big disconnect that often happens is like all of the knowledge gets concentrated in an organization or especially in the hands of a few attorneys and then impacted communities are still left without and like having to access that through just a few people.
0: I would say that's what we're trying to transform with the Keep Ale Free deportation defense campaign. I know from Ale's perspective, she was somebody who was living in Arizona as legal permanent resident and hadn't really thought about the immigration dragnet until she was caught up in it. And now is using the opportunity to do political education around Ira, IRA and how much havoc it continues to wreak. I think that it's it needs to be like a multi-pronged strategy. That's why we've, we've done a variety of things like virtual workshops for the Allied Media Conference, like, come and do things like this. Uh, Ale did also a really powerful documentary with a documentary filmmaker that told her story, and that 12 minute film is a total. It's like a total narrative shift around what you know the good immigrant versus a bad immigrant, and who is worthy of deportation relief. I think writing is a really important thing that is ultimately when we leave legal practice and go work for balls and strikes because. I just feel like there's not enough people that are paying attention to what the Supreme Court is doing. And that's because a lot of people that write about the law are lawyers and don't try and make it accessible to a non-legal audience. So like the blogs that I write, we try and make them funny. We (laughs) We try and make our coverage compelling. All of that goes into trying to disseminate political education and the podcast too. Like the podcast has an explicitly abolitionist focus and I think when you're trying to, when you're bringing forward a big idea like that, like abolishing prison or abolishing the police, it's something that you need, it's an idea that you need to be introduced to multiple times before you actually arrive at a place where you're like, okay, I think I can adopt this. And so for me, I think it's about repetition and consistency and bringing this topic forward and giving people multiple opportunities to engage with this stuff, not just you know, doing a 101 and then expecting everybody to be on board.
3: That's what I'd say. Yeah. How did you get
4: involved with Balls and Strikes?
0: It was very random. <laughs> yeah. um, my partner is also a lawyer and he was trying to find a new job. And then he came across the Balls and Strikes post and it was described as like, no bullshit commentary on the Supreme Court. And he was like, wait, that's what you do with the podcast. <laughs> and he's like, you should try it. And I, I had wanted to focus to switch to a role where I could be writing more. I just never thought it could happen. I mean, it's kind of a unicorn of a job, to be honest. I had kind of, yeah, I had kind of given up on it. I, I thought like, well, I'm just going to do this work during the day. And then I'm going to do the Keep on a Free Deportation Defense stuff and the podcast stuff in my free time. And then he presented this to me and I was like, wow, this does sound like it could be a really good opportunity. I feel like I really vibe with the editor-in-chief, Jay Willis. He's a legal journalist who also left legal practice because of how much he hated it. (laughs) Um, And we kind of immediately bonded over that in our interview. And he has the same goal of getting more people to pay attention to the Supreme Court and what it's doing. And to do so in a way that's funny and engaging and like fun to read. I think he's making me so much better at that. And that's what's made me stick around for almost a year now.
5: I had a question. I'm on Zoom. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm voice what? coming from the ceiling, I know. Uh, <laughs> okay. this, is, this is Kate. I I meant to interject before, um, okay. but I thank you for, you know, acknowledging the work that legal assistants and and paralegals do and the fact that they really are unrecognized frankly certainly the all of the places most of the places that I've worked as law students we don't even talk about the work that legal assistants and paralegals do yeah we're not prepared to work with them we're not we we have no idea especially in immigration law just the volume of weight that they pull at firms. And so I'm wondering your perspective as, as law students, if we want to prepare ourselves to be lawyers who don't function in that strict kind of stratification, uh, what we can do as law students to really educate ourselves about the work that law firm staff does and, and building relationships with the people who do that work as well, rather than just building relationships with attorneys in the community.
0: Well, I think it totally,
5: it kind of varies depending
0: on your office, but um, in a few of the places that I worked in, actually, like I did a lot of my paralegal work. And I think actually having to do that yourself will make you immensely more appreciative of the people that are helping you do that in places where you do have a full-time paralegal or legal assistant. Also, I brought up unionizing. And I think that is one very easy way to be an ally as a lawyer for people who are non-lawyers. I myself have had to do a lot of political education of my fellow lawyers to try and to explain like, why should we be in a union with non-lawyers? Like there's people who balk at that and who say, well, we're professionals and we have a certain code of ethics. So we should be in this separate bargaining unit and they should be in another bargaining unit. I think there's a lot of elitism tied up with that. Um, Definitely, this is not something that is talked about in law school. I mean, I'm sure you already know about the benefits of like wall to wall union units, but you're going to be much more powerful as a bargaining unit if it's all of you in the workplace and not that you're not segmented off pretty arbitrarily by whether or not you've passed the bar. Um, I think that's a really concrete way to be in solidarity with your fellow workers. And as a lawyer, being a part of the bargaining unit, also being in the nitty gritty of what the collective bargaining agreement has, um, the ways that it protects the non-lawyers is also a really concrete way to be an ally for people who are non-lawyers in your office. I hope that answered your question, Kate, from the
5: ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Thank you. <laughs>
1: I had one, and I think this actually came from Kate over email. So I will ask it instead of Kate. But um, I know that um, there had been some interest just specifically in the idea of deportation center abolition. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that's something you center a lot, obviously, in your work, and I'm wondering, both kind of about the history of your involvement in that. And maybe if you were hinting at how you communicate about sort of big concepts like that and break it into pieces so that people can buy into it and understand it.
0: So I was a prison abolitionist first. And then I kind of, I guess I, now that I've thought about it a lot, and I guess like the first time that I really seriously thought about whether or not we could abolish the police was, It was the summer before law school, I think, and I went to a critical resistance workshop. It's a Bay Area organization that does a lot of political education around abolishing prisons. The workshop just kind of confronted me with all these ways in which the police don't keep us safe. And so then in law school, I committed myself to deportation defense, but had these ideas about prison abolition. And then once you start to analyze the history of ICE immigration detention centers and the rise of incarcerating immigrants, And you're already somebody who was convinced that we should abolish prisons. Like it's a pretty easy way to connect both issues, even though they haven't always been connected in in our minds. And that's because, you know, like after Arizona versus United States, the Supreme Court said that police could ask about someone's immigration status when they pull someone over for whatever they're pulling someone over for. And that has allowed for the proliferation of 287G agreements between police and ICE. ICE wouldn't be able to deport as many people as it does if there weren't so many local police officers involved in their immigration enforcement. If you're somebody, the way that I explain it, because I think in the immigration world, there are people who are ready to abolish detention centers. They already see them as unjust. The bridge that you need to cross is like, okay, To do that, you need to abolish prisons and police, though. I think because of the way that technically immigration is a civil proceeding, and I think some of the mistakes that the immigrants' rights movement has made, you know, like in 2006 when the framing was like, we're not criminals, we're workers, I think that there has been a lot of tension between prison abolitionists and some immigrants' rights organizers because that's where the discourse has been at. People don't readily see the connections between ICE and the police in prison, but um, ICE would not be what it is today without the help of local police officers. Really, I think my journey has just been studying closely these connections and how they actually operate on the ground and using that as an argument for why we need to abolish ICE. But the thing that I'm always trying to communicate is that these systems are so interlinked that you can't keep one and abolish the other. Like if you're at all committed to abolishing one, you do have to abolish both. I think also, I think that there are certain things about immigration detention that make it maybe more palatable for abolition because the detention centers as they exist today are really a post 9-11 phenomenon. Even ICE itself is a post 9-11 phenomenon. Like it has not been that long since we've had these things and we can abolish them. Whereas the prison is like, you know, a hundreds, hundreds of year old institution that's a bit more difficult to tackle. But I don't always like to focus on those distinctions anyway, because at the end of the day, you can't just abolish ICE. You also have to abolish these other entities that are involved in the same thing.
3: Yeah. Um, having this being in the border region here, I'm just curious, what do you think are needs that are not being filled in our region and our community in ways that law students and future lawyers can help uh,
0: in terms of
3: in terms of abolishing like immigration detention centers I feel like the trend is going away from what we're hearing a lot of politicians talk about replacing visible barriers with technology mm -hmm. like electronic monitoring. Yeah, in the border region, and for me, that feels like it's going to be even harder to fight these systems as they evolve with the digital era. So, yeah. um, focus my question, but I wanted it to be brought to to see if like you had other ideas of developments in the border region that you're concerned with and that you see a need for people to mobilize around.
0: Something that we could pay more attention to is the city of Eloy and the city of Florence and how much they economically benefit from the detention centers and the prisons that are there. Eloy has two of the biggest ICE detention centers in the country. And because of its remote location, there hasn't been a persistent campaign to like shut Eloy detention center down, for example, which is kind of shocking to me because it's one of the worst ICE detention centers in the country, one of the highest suicide rates. People continue to die there and it kind of feels like a fact of Arizona life that Eloy Detention Center and La Palma Detention Center is always going to be there. And I think investigating um, the contracts that the city of Eloy enters into and what kind of financial gain they get from ICE is one thing that we can uncover that we haven't focused on too much. Eloy is actually really shady. Eloy was had contracted to be the intermediary between ICE and a West Texas detention facility. They were literally like the intermediary that ICE was going to subcontract out its obligations to and then Eloy subcontracted with Core Civic to run this detention center in Texas. And it's like why is the city of Eloy getting involved in this? What are they be- it's like they literally they got like a kickback for setting up this contract and um Nobody really talks about that (laughs) or like knows about it. I think also post-pandemic, the detention center had shut down a lot of the visitation programs that were regular. I think it's really important to always be supporting the people that are inside. Like I think that sometimes abolitionists are a little too critical of people who are actively trying to work to improve conditions in the detention centers. It's a complicated conversation because obviously... Any kind of advocacy that you do to improve conditions won't kind of necessarily lead to an increase of money for the detention center usually, but at the same time, we can't abandon people inside and restarting visit those visitation groups or like pushing back against ice and saying you need to reinstate those visitation programs is really important because I just remember from working people with people that were detained there. Those visits help people maintain their sanity and their humanity. And I think post-pandemic, now that we're kind of growing comfortable with things being virtual, in-person visitation to detention centers might be something that falls to the wayside or like it's been suspended by ICE. And I think that those are things that are worth fighting to get back. These detention centers are already so isolated. People are already so far from their loved ones. It's so, so cruel to me that that's the status quo. And then on top of that, you're stopping the elderly religious folks that want to come and talk to people. And the 287G agreements still exist in Arizona too. But but then that's the other thing. It's like, then even if you don't have a 287G agreement, there's people like, Arizona cops love collaborating with ICE, basically is what I'm saying. And that's something that we can work on. Yes, <laughs> before I go on and on. <laughs> yeah,
2: Himan County has a 287G agreement with ICE, right? The sheriff's
0: department? Oh, yes, the sheriff, yes.
2: I feel like I've never seen any campaign about that, like anything, I mean, that being addressed, because I know that like a lot of people get funneled from the 29th Street Jail up to Eloy mm-hmm. and Florence.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that's something that was a problem with the sanctuary bill that was proposed because it was about Tucson, the Tucson Police Department, which does not collaborate with ICE and Pima County and it, but it didn't target the Pima County Sheriff's Office, which does have the active contract and does actively cooperate. And so that was a huge strategy gap. And I'm guessing that's like a knowledge gap too, because why would you target Tucson Police Department if the sheriff is actually collaborating with ICE? Yeah, that's, that's a great one.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, CPD like sucks for many others. Yes, things, exactly. But, like, at least they don't collaborate with ICE. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's- sheriff's department should get a lot more attention than it
3: does I agree. can I ask a follow-up question then yeah like from from what you learned how would you recommend wannabe movement lawyers start (laughs) learning how to put together like public education campaigns
0: around some of these issues oh my gosh that's a good question I'm not an organizer so I just like I learned from organizers like Ale I would say that's how I've done it um yeah. I think that's probably the only way to do it as a lawyer because we're not, not going to be taught that in law school. So it's, it's a little bit of trial by error, but I think to avoid errors, it's just taking leadership of people who like live and breathe organizing and who know how to how to do that. It's always a multi-pronged strategy. I think you just have to do it, honestly, <laughs> like, um, and and learn along the way. There aren't, too many blueprints. Although I will say, I just read Abolition Feminism Now by Angela Davis, Beth Ritchie, Erica Miners. And it's like a whole chronology of abolitionist feminist organizing that's happened in Chicago. And I think that's like a good place to look at for reference to see what people have done in the past. But a lot of it is really just like building relationships, getting in community with people and like collectively deciding to do something. (laughs) yeah
2: <laughs> like that. Sorry, I know I no, no, I don't want to like bounce back and forth with Julian I the uh yeah there's like this campus union that we can all join and they're doing a lot of organizing. So I feel like that might be a good way to just learn about organizing mm-hmm. while also supporting like unionization and, and uh better wages and treatment.
0: Yeah, I love
2: that.
0: $58 a month. Oh my god, that was another thing I had to educate lawyers about. Like why do we why do we pay dues? <laughs> <laughs> Like, do you think that this person is doing this for free? That's insane.
3: <laughs> questions? Yeah. So just going back to working with people on the
1: inside, I was wondering do you know the names of any of the orgs that would go do regular visitations before visitations were prohibited? And also, is there a way to? Otherwise, communicate with people who are being detained just as, I mean, for the sanity reasons, but also, you know, to raise awareness around what conditions are like there by actually talking to people who are there. Mm-hmm. When I was in the Bay Area, that's what a lot of the organizing is doing. But here, I haven't found a way to like actually communicate with them who is inside. And I know they make it a lot harder here. Yeah. They have a lot to hide. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, um, yeah, I just didn't do that.
0: Yeah, the visitation group that I'd recommend is Transqueer Pueblo. They're actually a really amazing organization to get involved with to learn about public education, political education. They're some of the best at it I've seen. They're a member-led organization. It's all queer undocumented migrants who are organizing queer undocumented migrants that are detained. And like I said, their political education is a marvel. It's something we can all learn from. I think they'd be a great group to connect with to try and restart visitation to see what they're doing about it. And then also the Florence Project does have the best access to people inside. So I feel like connecting with somebody from that organization (laughs) um, could be a good way, even just to get the lay of the land, like what's happening? Are they allowing visits? When do you all go? That kind of thing. There's religious groups too. There's like, like elderly folks who are religious get together and go, but I I know less about them. I'm not as connected.
1: I think I saw that Sanae on Zoom has her hand raised. Sanae, do you want to ask your question?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, you put
4: Hi, it yes. I was. I don't know if you can hear me, um, but I did just put my question via the chat. But also, I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank you, Eva, so much for your time and all your work. I. Started listening to your podcast back when you had a, a colleague in 2018, I think. Yeah. And yeah. I was a paralegal at a at like a public interest immigration firm. So I completely relate with everything and all the injustices and disparities that you were talking about. And also your podcast, I know for me and like other fellow Latina Paralegals, Afro-Latina Paralegals at my office. We used to rave about your podcast because we were like, it was literally one of the few spaces where we knew that other fellow Central American, like Latin American women were also exposing topics that we cared about and in a way that just made sense. I had never in, been introduced to case in any other way. And I'm so glad that my first introduction was through your podcast. Of course, law school was completely different, but I'm glad that we have (laughs) places like these (laughs) where we're able to bring speakers like yourself and disrupt just colonial thinking and doctrine is supposed to be taught. With that, my question was in regards to prison abolition and restorative justice. I was wondering if you've written on or planned to do any work, but whether that's through your podcast or your writing to elevate Indigenous ways of community healing and restorative justice methods and practices that they have been using since before um, Europeans even ever arrived to this country. So wanted to know if you could speak on that.
0: Yeah, that's definitely something I want to learn more about. I started thinking about this more after the Dinespe case this last term, which was about whether or not the federal courts that are run by the Secretary of the Interior are tribal courts enforcing tribal law, and whether or not, if somebody is convicted in that type of federal court, if they can also be convicted by the federal government without violating the double jeopardy clause. And it's kind of an in the weeds question, but it's ultimately about native sovereignty. And going into the history of these courts, you see that. The U.S. imposed its legal system onto tribal nations post-treaties. It was going back on the original promises of the treaty. And the major instance that first sparked this encroachment was the murder of somebody named Spotted Tail. And the Sioux tribe had dealt with it in their traditional way. And the punishment that was imposed was that the person who killed Spotted Tail had to give monetary recompense to the family members of the victim. And then this outraged the white settlers who thought that if you murder someone, you need to execute them via the death penalty. And that's what led to the Major Crimes Act, which is what gave the federal government exclusive jurisdiction over charging certain crimes on Native land, like include murder and set of acts that they felt like were so serious that the federal government needed to be charged with enforcing them. And then the encroachment on the part of states and these other weird kind of quasi-tribal, quasi-federal government tribal courts that are put on by the Secretary of the Interior are all linked to that original imposition, which was based on this idea that the U.S. legal system is superior to the native conflict resolution system that was in place. And it's it's really disheartening um, to think that it started with that justification and continues on as an undercurrent. And the secretary of the interior courts that enforce tribal law are not Gors- <laughs> Gorsuch, who's randomly like woke on this issue, <laughs> describes them as hated. Because they are, and there's internal government reports that show that Native witnesses are not willing to come forward, and there's low prosecution rates as a result. And so there's obviously not buy-in for the U.S. legal system and how it's operating on Native reservations. That is something that I do want to think about more, and I would love to write about more. So thank you for making me think about that again. So nice, says, thank you.
1: Wonderful. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, any other questions in the room? Well, then I think if that answers everybody's questions, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the Southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. If you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash radiocachimbona is the best way to do so for 3 5 or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the lit reviews, which are book club style chats. Another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps podcast with visibility. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, cachimbonas!